It's 12 noon on Wednesday, and we are live here at our makeshift little humble basement studio for another episode of the Pastor Mike Drop Podcast, and it's live. Did I mention that? It's live. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Grab your Bibles. Uh, We are going to start with a major prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, then we're going to go to minor or lesser epistles, and you'll find out there's nothing lesser about the lesser epistles. They pack a punch. So grab that Bible, pull up a chair, and let's go. Welcome, everybody, to the Pastor Mike Drive Podcast. Welcome, co-host Emily. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? You know, I'm excited. Yeah, I say this every week because it's God's <laughs> word, but I really am super excited. Isaiah is a major prophet, and it's always fun to talk about that. That text is heavy and deep and hopeful and all those things. But, but Titus and Philemon, which uh-huh. are not exactly New Testament books that we think about a lot or talk about a lot, but maybe that's... That's not quite right because, as I said in the opener, mm-hmm. uh, they're short. They're relatively short so letters short. from Paul. Very, very short, which makes our Bible reading easier this, yeah. this week, right? Everybody, you're welcome. You know, have a little quick read. But boy, do they pack a punch. And maybe you caught that as you're reading. Maybe you're like, really, do they? Because it sounds like same old, same old. Yeah, there's some repeated themes, but there's so much more to it. So, yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. And we... I'm also excited about our panel of pastors, Emily. Yes, we have Pastor Scott Rains, lead campus pastor at Hope Ames. Ankeny. Or no, Ankeny. I used to I say Ames a. when I first started. Isn't that you interesting? You did it too? Yeah, I would say welcome to Ames. And I'm oh, like, no, like we're, while you were yeah, in Ankeny. Yeah, while I was in Ankeny. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, mostly Ankeny. in Ankeny. Both towns start with an A. Ankeny so, you know, you're close. Also has big Wednesday night stuff happening. We oh, talked man. about ours last week. It's going to be exciting tonight. And uh, we... We built a new addition a couple of years ago. The congregation was so faithful to do that and, and understood why. And so we're packing out the reservoir for it's Power Life and Ignition. A beautiful it's beautiful facility. Yeah. That's it, great. It's, I'm going to just say this real quick. It's the coolest thing at Hope Ankeny. So you have like two sanctuaries, really. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And on Sunday mornings even, there's services that the, whoever's preaching just jumps. Yep. Kind of like I do here when we have our we have our chapel traditional well, service every week. We learned from you. So I go from the worship center to the chapel and back. But you're... You're taking that to another level because you've got you're like back forth, back forth, back forth. Yeah, so you? four four on Sunday morning with two in each location. Oh, okay. And okay. then one on uh, on Saturday night. But yeah, and and this fall we're trying something new with the reservoir service on the weekend being this acoustic, intimate kind of a feel. I like it. On Wednesday nights though, it is anything but that. It's rocking. It is. Lights and yeah, yeah, crazy fun stuff. Speaking of lights and crazy fun stuff, yes, Pastor Nick Brannon, youth pastor, with uh, all the crazy fun. Oh, stuff. with all the crazy fun stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, I is it the lights shining on me? Uh, <laughs> well, it, and there are lots of lights and crazy fun stuff on Wednesday nights at Hope West Des Moines too. Yeah, because I mean, why not have a party for Jesus? You why know? shouldn't but, he get our best? Right. Why should Taylor Swift get all the good lights and fun stuff? Yeah. Right? I mean, she's great too. We're, God, we're pro. God, God we're made pro Taylor. That. Yeah, that's good. It's not. It's not a competition, but, but Taylor if didn't she gets save it, us, you what? know. Yeah. She just wrote some good songs. She did. She did. That's uh, that's right. So I'm trying to think of a line from a Taylor Swift song real quick, but it's Karma? escaping me. No, we don't believe in that. Off. Yeah. We were literally setting out lights last week and we were having a conversation about like how many should we get? And it's like the 
the more the merrier. That's right. Hold Even on a second. Less. We have a huge Taylor Swift fan over here, Kelsey. Give me a line, <laughs> your favorite line from your favorite song, Taylor Swift. Um, Make the friendship bracelets, take, take the moment and chase it. That's almost in the Bible. We are literally making friendship bracelets as one of just like the spaces to hang out at Ignition tonight. tonight? Yes, it's in the plan. Uh-huh. Wow. So, folks, we, didn't, we did not did. plan this conversation. <laughs> I, I guarantee you. If the Lord would have it. Yeah. He's weaving We're not in. all making friendship. Just those that want it's to. Right. Anyone that's like tuning is like, I don't want to make friendship bracelets. I get it. It's fine. Pastor Nick leads our high school ministry here called Ignition at, at Hope West Des Moines. It's huge. It's awesome. It's, But it's not, you know, we get excited about the numbers of kids who show up, but even more exciting, I know, to you, to me, I think to all of us, Emily, you oversee mm-hmm. that whole ministry, plus about a million other things. But when we look at that, it's it's that in the midst of that crowd, it's all these individuals and God's mm-hmm. getting a hold of their hearts. Mm-hmm. It, we did a faith check-in with our high school students. And basically it's a survey for them to reflect, like, where am I at really with God yeah. these days? How are things going with my community and, and all these things? And boy, the, just seeing like how many people are struggling with so many different burdens and like they they laid it out there. And so I'm just so excited for what God is going to do in the lives of high school students this year. It's really, really cool to see. And um, we say it all the time around here because I don't know, I think we have to keep reminding people that what what we've been experiencing from God is not normal. You don't see it. You don't mm-hmm. see it all over the, like right, God's right. doing things all over the world. Yeah, don't but there's something really, really special that he's up to yeah. uh, here at Lutheran Church of Hope. And what a blessing to be able to be a part of that together. And I've been around long enough now that I was walking in and uh, Pastor Ashley was leaving, who's one of our pastors up in Ankeny. And she was in one of our first Power Life and Ignition small groups, whatever, 15 years ago when we were first getting started. And so to see, yeah, We've got some lights and fun, awesome things that are happening, but mostly what's happening is God's capturing people's hearts. And and I say Ames, a lot of our high school ignition students end up at Iowa State, right. mm-hmm. part of the Kairos. I'm getting uh, conversations from parents who are so excited that their high school students are now getting plugged in at Kairos. It's really cool to see what right. God's doing. And for those who are new, Kairos is Hope's college-age outreach ministry in Ames and in Iowa City. Yep. Um, and it's attracting huge crowds there too. It's, it's not us. I can't emphasize that enough because as soon as we start thinking it's us, then the power goes out. Really, mm-hmm. it's it's almost like unplugging. It's God's power through our weaknesses usually. Uh, that, but it's but it's also. And Nick, you alluded to this when you surveyed these high school students. They're very honest. I'm sure about um, the struggles and also about the good news of of how the gospel breaks through. That really reminds me, when we're honest about it, when we tell the truth about what we need, then we're hungry and we get hungrier and hungrier for the word, which is a perfect segue into our readings for this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Titus, Philemon, uh, which are these efforts, prophets of God, Isaiah, uh, the the apostle Paul, not a prophet, but an apostle, says some prophetic things, that's for sure. God's got a word for us today. God's got a word for you if you're out there today and you're hurting and you're struggling and you're trying to figure it out, trying to make sense of this of life in this world that's so upside down so many times. Um, from the outside looking in, I think a lot of people think the Bible is just this this sort of pie in the sky, distant, spirit, overly spiritualized kind of passages, little fortune cookie sayings, uh, you know, about how to do life and all this sort of thing. 
it's so much more honest than that. It's so much more down to earth and real than that. And it shows us again and again, there's a God who meets us in the ditches, not just the mountaintops. There's a God who meets us in the darkness, not just the light. Um, and with that, let's let's dive into some questions that people have been asking. Thank you for submitting them, and you can continue to submit them with Kelsey on social media as you watch this live podcast, and we'll get to as many as we can. So with that, Ted Lasso, help us out. Why don't we just jump right in? Anybody got any questions? Oh, yeah. No, should have saw that coming. Okay. What stood out for you in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapters 21 through 39 this week, Scott? I was a little surprised by what stood out to me. Um, It it started in the readings from last week, too, but then it carried into this one. It's like judgment after judgment after judgment on the nations around Israel and around Jerusalem, but eventually it gets to close to home. And uh, chapter 24 begins, look, the Lord is about to destroy the earth and make it a vast wasteland. He devastates the surface of the earth and scatters the people. Now, Obviously, the earth did not get destroyed, but for the people of Jerusalem who are experiencing um, invasion, conquest, uh, being carried away into captivity, a complete upheaval of their you know, regular way of life, it felt like the world was ending. And then where that took me was how, how many times do the hard things that are going on in our life relationally, financially, mm. health-wise, uh, it feels like the world is just collapsing all around us. And, and one of the things that can happen in those moments is, I, I don't see the people of Jerusalem or um, uh, Israel concerned about, oh, God's going to do that to Tyre or Samaria or Egypt or Ethiopia. It's like, okay, whatever. That's and, their problem. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we get to that kind of place so easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, and, and, and so there's this, this sense that, man, everything awful is happening in my life. Um, where's God in the midst of this? That sort of thing. One other thought is sometimes <laughs> the awful thing that's happening in our life in the midst of horrible things that are actually going on in the world is the referee made the bad call against my team. And that's devastating to me. And so we can get so self-focused that we actually miss the larger part of what's happening in the world. Mm. Yeah. Meanwhile, great tragedies could be happening. You know, I think of Morocco, Libya, uh, even parts of our own country, our own community, things can be happening here that get slid to the, to, to kind of the back backdrop when we're upset about something that really isn't uh, worth getting upset about for more than a minute or two, you know, at the most. And I think that kind of mindset, because we get upset about this little thing for this minute, but then another little thing, and and then we're consumed by a bunch of little things mm-hmm. when there's a larger mission that we've been called into, which we'll get into when we get to our New Testament readings. Yeah. What stood out for you, Pastor Nick, as you're reading through Isaiah? You know, and for those of you that you're Bible scholars, you already know this, uh, but like when you're reading through the Bible, and you you see this a lot in Isaiah, you probably can't even see this, it's a tiny little Bible, yeah, so, uh, but there's all these indentations, and you're probably thinking, why do they have indentations, and what's the deal with that? It's because that's actually Hebrew poetry, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's they're representing that, but it doesn't come across in English in the same way that it would, and so you... You read that, and there's all this prophetic poetry, and then you get to to chapter 36, and then all of a sudden the paragraphs look like paragraphs you're used to reading because we're out of poetry, 
and the whole literary genre changes for a moment and there's history, there's story, this, there's what actually happened. And this is what stood out to me was because uh, this is the story where Assyria uh, uh, invades Judah and, uh, and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he basically destroys any political, um, uh, uh, I don't know, power, not really power, but just like the, he had a message. The king of Judah had a message, Hezekiah, of, hey, we're going to trust in God. And he wasn't perfect. He'd mess some things up along the way. But, hey, we're going to trust in God. We're going to hold out. We're going to hold down the fort. And the, the Assyrians came and they basically said, here's why that's dumb. Right. And they sounded really smart about it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was... It made sense it made to the sense. world. It made lots of sense. And to depend on God, when you were looking at this vast army that had done so much and the, a leader who'd messed up quite a bit, man, it, it, was, it was a scary, scary moment. And the thing that, that was standing out to me was that as Hezekiah is realizing, I am facing this army, these people don't trust me, I am stuck. He does the thing that a lot of times we maybe do last, which is he takes it to God. Mm-hmm. Is he, he goes to the actual source of power, the actual leader of that, those people, and he prays. And I love what uh, Isaiah's prophecy is right after he does that. It says in 37 verse 21, uh, it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you prayed about King Sennacherib of Assyria. The Lord has spoken this word against him. Mm. And so because this leader was willing to, to say, okay, I don't have the power to do this. I don't, I don't have what I need and I don't have the credibility, yep. but God does. And that, God spoke. That's huge. And it's not just huge in Isaiah's day. It's huge in Paul's day and Titus's day and Philemon's day because that theme and Nick, that, that you that, right and that's where I was going to go next is just to say it's timeless. It's a timeless truth. One of the things that really stood out to me as I was reading these chapters, these nineteen chapters of Isaiah that were assigned to us this week, twenty-one to thirty-nine, mm-hmm. is just pick up a little bit on what both of you were saying. Yes, it's really important to note this is poetry. I can't remember who wrote the book, but it was a classic book back in seminary days. It was, a, it was almost like a prophetic word to preachers. Finally comes the poet. Enough with your, you know, babbling about all the deep... Now, there's a time for history, and there's a time to teach, and there's a time to go verse by verse, and there's a time for all those things. But this great theologian was saying, finally comes the poet, finally comes the prophet, finally comes the one who dares to speak God's prophetic word to a world today. And, and to say it in such a way that's going to capture the attention, the way a song hits our heart, right. mm-hmm. more than just a history book hits our head. So the Bible's got both. And you mentioned both right here in our reading from Isaiah this week. There's history. There's Hezekiah, pretty faithful dude king in the midst of chaos. There's Isaiah, much to his own you know, uh, challenging kinds of, uh, j- just for his own personal safety, he had to go out there and say some things that he knew nobody wanted to hear. Finally comes the poet, though. He did it. He, here I am. Send me. That's, that, that, right, that's the faithful right. response of a faithful prophet to God's call. And, and that's a timeless truth for us today, too. So important to note what genre of literature we're reading, because when it's lyrics, when it's poetry, understand it's aiming for your heart. God, God's going there. And so now as you read through our readings from Isaiah this week, it's most of it, and people just you know step back and want to outline it and overstructure poetry. 
would say, okay, 1 to 39, first Isaiah, it's judgment and woe and warning. And it is. That's, you know, uh, Judah, you're going to fall to the Babylonians. Before that, Israel, you're going to fall to the Assyrians. You're going to do it because you're filled with your own pride. You're filled with your own, you're going to make it on your own. You're, you're filled with all these things that are the opposite of what this faithful king did uh, after hearing Isaiah's prophecy. This is really key for us. This is this, this big theme, and I can't hit it hard enough. Look at, for instance, chapter 26, uh, well, chapter 30, verse 15. We'll start there. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is the poetry, the, the, the song that God speaks through Isaiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. Only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In mm. quietness and confidence is your strength, but you would have none of it, and that's why you're going to fall. Mm. So in the midst of all these warnings and woes, uh, you know, kind of a, a real downer to say the path you're on is, is going to, there's a cliff at the end and you're going to fall. There's also these hints, like if you do humble yourself, if you do repent, if you do turn back to me, if you do let God be God, if you do stop playing God, if you do stop pretending that there's the world out there is going to save the world instead of the God who is our savior. One more, chapter 26, verse 19. So in the midst of, well, go back to verse uh, 17. Just as a pregnant woman rises and cries out in pain as she gives birth, so were we in your presence, Lord. We too writhe in agony, but nothing comes of our suffering. Wow, that's about mm-hmm. as down as it can get. Next verse. But those who die in the Lord will live. Wow. <laughs> so starting next week, we're going to read prophecies mostly of hope and encouragement and blessing and promise for the people who are in exile. But the people who are getting too comfortable, God's challenging them with this word. But even in the midst of the challenges, there's this prophetic word about this hope we have in God and the Savior who's going to come. It's almost like starting to set the table for, well, for Jesus. And so the New Testament doesn't make nearly as much sense unless we dive into this stuff in the Old Testament. Yeah, you got to hear the, the truth. We can be honest about the bad news. And the honesty about the bad news makes the authenticity of the good news so much more impactful in our hearts. And so when we are honest about, yes, this is awful, death is awful, sickness is awful, all of that is awful, and we will live. And yes, Boom. even when we die because we're in, in Christ, who is, who is the one who is God in the flesh and God is life. Well, if you're in God who is life, death doesn't get the last word. What a, even in the Old Testament, even before Christmas, you know, and Easter, even before Jesus showed up, we have this, this prophetic promise. God's saying, yeah, hold on. I've got a plan. You know, stay, stay with me. Stop mm-hmm. drifting off to any other, except no substitutes is kind of what God is saying uh, again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. But we're humans and we are sinful by nature and we accept a lot of substitutes. And that's when we mess up the world in our lives. What I love about all your answers that I think applies to this book, which I thought was tougher. It is tough. um, But really to all of it is it's so helpful for me to understand when we're studying it. Like Nick, you talked about the history of the literature and how it was written and then understanding the context of it. But then Mike, you pointing out like, and here's what God was doing. And Scott, what I loved about the start of your answer, you said, well, I was surprised by what stood out to me. You're pastors. Like you guys know this stuff. But it's just this constant reminder. You're not the only one who said it on a podcast this year, that this is the living word of God. And so God's going to call us to how he's speaking to us or what he's doing. 
in our lives in different ways and things are going to stand out. And so all of those three things, like the context and what God was doing for these people and then how God can kind of call to us through it, you all spoke to that just in that one answer. But that's happened constantly, and that's so cool. And, and what if we would be surprised every moment of our life that, oh, this might be a moment God's going to show up in, yeah. in a surprising mm-hmm. way, in a surprising conversation, in a surprising encounter uh, through art. While I'm watching a, a kid's movie, you know, with, with my family, boom, here comes the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I would summarize a lot of what we're saying as a very real God shows up in a very real world full of all sorts of fallenness and sin and suffering and hits us who are living real lives in this real world and changes everything by giving us hope. And we'll talk more about that hope as we go too, because that shows up in our New Testament readings. Um, it's, not, it's not a made-up God meeting people who are pretending to be something religious so that we can pretend that everything's okay and just have a bunch of platitudes about how, well, we have this religion and hopefully when we die, in the end, we'll, we'll, it'll somehow get us where we want to go. No, oh, it's so much more real than that. And that gives me goosebumps to say that. I mean, it really, truly does, that there is a God who has a living word, as you said, Emily, mm-hmm. that meets us right where we are, those high school students that you're going to meet tonight, Nick, uh, by the hundreds and hundreds who show up. And so many of them struggling, because they're, and they're being honest about it. Maybe they're more honest to you than they would be to their friends. Because you gave him a chance to say in a very safe survey, hey, here's where I'm really at. A real God meets those real students and meets all of us, too, and everybody listening. If we humbly open ourselves to it, minds, hearts, souls, that changes everything. I can't (laughs) – and if if it would help for me to stand on my head and whistle Dixie while I needed to get people's (laughs) attention, I would. I'd do anything to get people to grab onto this and apply it to their lives. Mm. That's good. Okay, switching gears a bit. How does the text of Titus make more sense when we understand the context of Crete's spiritual history and reputation? Yeah, the phrase a bunch of Cretans actually comes from the history of Crete. Crete's this island off of Greece, uh, has a has a Greek or you know, focused culture. Uh, Titus is there assigned by Paul to be a church leader in Crete to finish the work there, to point elders, to oversee the church. In Greek mythology, and most of our listeners will know this, there's Zeus, and he's sort of like the top dog, god, false god, idol, you know, who's that, that mythologically make up to say, well, he's from Crete, and so are most of the other gods. And so what's happened in the church, the Christian church in Crete, is they've started to mix together Jesus with Greek mythology, and when you do that, it doesn't make the recipe better. <laughs> It makes it really messy, and it it's doesn't good thing taste nothing good. like that happens today, though. Yeah, good thing it, it kind of does. So it's a it's a good reminder and a warning. Uh, Titus has his hands full in Crete, uh, so Paul contrasts, you know, Cretans who are known as being liars and manipulators and good for nothings. Paul even says that he's like, you know, hey, here in in chapter one. He, he, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. And then in Paul is saying, hey, now, that's a little harsh. Paul follows that up with, this is true. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is who they are in this particular time. He's not talking about Crete, the you know, people of Crete today. Talking about Cretans back then, that this is their reputation. This is what they were about. And they were about it because they honored and revered Greek mythological gods like Zeus, who was a liar 
who was a womanizer who would lie to women to get what he wanted, you know, from them in just the creepy bar lounge lizard kind of way. Uh, and then, but the Cretans, instead of saying, well, that's terrible, they, they applauded him for it. They said, this is just awesome. So if that's your hero, if our leaders, if the people who we, we call heroic leaders are Cretan-like, liars, manipulators, womanizers, we might be revering the wrong leaders. We, we might be giving a little too much room to let people lead us who, biblically speaking, should not be leading us. And that's Paul's problem with what's happening in Crete. And that's why he writes this letter uh, called, called Titus to Titus, who is, who is this hopeful leader who can turn things around by pointing people back to Jesus. It's interesting that the the summary that you gave us from what we were reading in Isaiah was all about reality. Yeah. And uh, liars just refuse to deal with reality. It, at the beginning, in verse 2, uh, Paul defines God as the God who does not lie. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, Pete Scazzaro, one of my favorite authors uh, in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, has a line that something like, the greatest danger to our spiritual life is the inability to live in reality. And if, if, if we lie our way, uh, pretend our way, uh, manipulate our way into getting what we want and can't just stay in this real world, uh, experiencing the real life that our real God has for us, it, uh, it becomes this crazy place that, that Creed is. As one of the things I love about the year of the whole Holy Bible, I can't remember the last time I looked up the history of the island of Crete. I so I was like, oh, we're going to be talking about it. I better yeah. look it up. And the the scene that popped into my head was uh, when Luke Skywalker goes to that cat- cantina and uh, there's crazy music playing and there's just these bounty hunters everywhere. I think he's looking for Obi-Wan or something. But I'm like, oh, I think, I think that's a good picture of what Crete must have been like back in this day. <laughs> Over the top wild. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And because that's the setting and that's the context, that's what I mean by this relatively little epistle, this short little letter packs a powerful punch because mm-hmm. Paul's not going to hold anything back. In three short chapters, he's going to set everything straight. And he does that by naming it up front. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, the leaders who are there who are manipulating people, they must... The faithful Christians must stop listening to them, to the not just the Greek mythology that they're mixed up with, but he also says to the Jewish myths and the commands of people who've turned away from the truth. One of the greatest things about Christianity is we don't have to pretend. We don't have to fake it. Like, like again, this theme keeps popping up, Isaiah and now Titus. They are coming in and saying, hey, these, these false teachers, these false leaders – let me turn you away from the truth by telling you uh, you're commanded to do these things. And in today's world, it's you have to get baptized a certain way. You have to get saved a certain way. You have to, if, if your salvation depends on anything beyond the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and us receiving the good news of that gift into our lives, you've just lost it. I mean, it, because now it's about us being like, well, I have to do all these things. I have to repent a certain way. I have, to, I have to come to faith a certain way. I have to mark that faith a certain way. I have to prove it a certain way. Be very, very careful. Those things are in the Bible. Those things are really important. And in no way am I trying to proclaim some sort of cheap grace where it's just like, oh, well, doesn't matter what you do. Of course it matters what you do, but it matters what you do for the sake of 
how your life's going to go and how your relationships are going to go and how your future is going to go and are you going to make the world a better place or a worse place? Of course it matters. And so that biblical teaching's in there. But the law doesn't save us. I mean, if we've learned anything from reading Paul in the New Testament, the law can't save us. Following religious commands doesn't do it. That's not what kicks the door open to heaven. Jesus does, and Jesus alone. And so the great thing about Christianity is we can stop pretending. We can stop being like, well, you're not religious enough, really, or you're not spiritual enough for me or for Jesus and really to get in. You got to do. Here's your got to do list. Oh, now, Jesus dying on the cross, that's really nice, but you got to do all these other things. Nonsense, Paul's saying. Enough of this. This, because what it does is it minimizes Jesus. And as soon as we do that, we're in big trouble. Well, and as we move into a more legalistic way of thinking about how we live out our faith, I think it turns us inward. Uh, it right. it, it yes. hampers our... Such a we'll, good point. We'll say, these are the places we have to avoid, rather than saying, these are the places we have to reach. And mm-hmm. I, I think it would have been easy for Paul to look at Crete and say, eh, I don't see any hope for that place. We'll yeah. just avoid it. We can, we can get around mm-hmm. the Roman Empire some other way without having to go through Crete. We'll just, you know, it's, it, it's surrounded by water. Just let them, you know, destroy themselves. But no, he says, we're bringing... God to them. Yeah. Now tell us, what does it mean for us to have hope or confidence of eternal life? And how does God's promised future for us change the way we live now? Well, I think this connects directly to what we were just talking about. Uh, It's, here's the thing. I know so many people, I talk with so many people that they're like, okay, I've been a Christian my whole life and I'm just not like feeling super close to God right now. and, And they don't feel confident and they'll even wonder, Am I for sure going to heaven? Do I believe enough? Do I have enough faith? Do I, do I, do I, do I? And the answer is, no, you don't. Like, you don't. But God has enough faithfulness. God has enough love. God has enough grace that all the, all the, I mean, just the fact that someone wants to have faith in Jesus, Mm. that's enough. It's enough. It's enough to want to have faith in Jesus because you trust him enough to say, you're the Lord and I'm not. But then what we do sometimes as humans is we try to grab back and do something for God, and then we attribute that to whether or not we're going to be saved. We want to let God's good news, his promise of hope, of salvation, we want that to actually be the motivation to go do good things, the motivation to love. So we don't love to be saved, we love because we're saved. And when we get the cart in front of the horse, <laughs> that that's where Christianity gets messed up. I think, and I feel like this has been said many, many times on the podcast, so I'm sorry if I'm, I know I'm repeating myself. So and, is Paul. And many, it's okay. It's a big point. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, if the cart's in front of the horse and the law becomes your gospel, you are going to try to do things for God when God is already in love with you. God already has purchased your salvation, won a victory for you. And so, I don't know, if, if you're on this podcast and you're listening, I don't know where the that camera right there, uh, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, I don't know if God loves me, uh, I just want you to know the very fact that you want that and you want him, uh, yeah, you can have it. It's It's yours. So trust it now. Just trust it. And put your bet, put your faith in Jesus, because that hope that we have, that's what leads us to do the, to live the life that we're meant to live. Like you were talking about, Pastor Mike, is that if we're going to live a life of love, 
We don't just manufacture it. We receive it from God, and it overflows into our life. I love the way you said that. We, we don't love because we're trying to get saved. We love because we are saved. Right. And that is so crucial. It's, it's getting carts and horses in the right place. Uh, the Greek word here backs you up too. The, literally speaking, the Greek word that's translated as hope. And so if we go to Titus chapter 1, verse 2, I'll just read this to make sure everybody listening is on the same page, <laughs> literally. This truth gives them hope in most English translations, gives them hope that they have eternal life which God, who does not lie, and Paul's doing a nice contrast there, by the way, of Zeus who lies right. and manipulates, but the one true God doesn't lie. I'm just going to throw that out there, Paul's saying, promise them before the world began. So there's an assurance. There's a hope that's assured. It's not a hope that's a wish upon a star. I hope the Cubs win tonight. They really need to win tonight. They've been on a slump and, and they're blowing. The, the, it's like a, a it's like 1969 coming all back together Should have again. saved some runs from last night. Yes. But. Well, that's kind of how I was thinking too when I saw that. So <laughs> we'll see. But, but I hope they win. But the hope that Paul's talking about here, the Greek word is elpsis. It, it means, it doesn't mean wish upon a star. It doesn't mean, well, we'll see. I hope so. You know, I, I, hope, uh, I, hope, I hope what I want to happen comes true. I hope before I blew out the candles on the birthday cake, that wish comes true. This is so much better. The, the word here is so much better than that. And the NLT actually picks up on it. Here's where the NLT uh-huh. really gets the translation right. Instead of translating Elpsis, uh, Elpsis as hope, it's, it translates it as confidence. We can have confidence that we're saved. We can know that we're saved. And why does that matter? Well, if, I'm, if I hope the Cubs win tonight, I don't know. It's a toss-up. It's a flip of a coin, right? The other team's going to try, too. You know, we'll see what happens. Paul's not saying this is a flip of a coin. Hmm. He's saying Jesus' death and resurrection and your trust in that, your faith in that, should give you confidence, assurance, so that you know that you know. It's, it's the same thing as having confidence in something that's trustworthy and true. You know that it's done. Uh, it's, it's, as Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. I've finished death for you. Well, I've finished, finished sin for you. I've finished evil for you. It's wiped out. It's done. And, I mean, you've got to hand it to the Cretans if they grew up with Zeus, and then they start hearing about Jesus and God the Father, the Holy Spirit. They're going to probably apply things that they were given growing, and just like all of us, we all do this. We all grew up with different things, and this we apply, the, even our families, we apply, well, my dad was like this, so my heavenly father must be like that, but that's not always true. And Paul's fixing a little bit of that here, saying, God promised and he actually fulfills them because they're thinking, well, we've heard God's promise things before, like Zeus. Like yeah. Zeus. Uh-huh. That means nothing. No, when you look at the character of who God is, it changes what his promise means to us. Right. It changes, uh, it changes it, and it means that we can put our faithfulness in it. And so if you're struggling to feel the feelings of faith, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people, when they, f- when they struggle that way, what they're actually doing is they're applying something, maybe a person from their past or a belief that's incorrect about God to God. And what they need to do is, is say, God, show me who you really are. Show me how much you really love me. Show me what you're really like. The actual God is good news. The actual God's more surprising and right. way better. Right. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was something I was thinking about as I was looking at this question. We have Saturday services, which is awesome most of the year except for in the fall. 
when Iowa kicks off at 2.30 every week. So Preach. I, Come ne- on now. I never get to see the game until after church, and I already know the outcome. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's frustrating to you that people don't come. No, yeah, no, okay. no, no. Because that's yeah. how oh, I see it. They don't yeah. come. They come to Ankeny still. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, okay. uh-huh. So uh, I know the outcome. Hopefully they a, come back Sunday. But yes, right. go on. Yeah. It's a very different game-watching experience when I already know the final score. I, mm. yes, I, sure. I don't get as nervous. I sometimes find myself saying, how in the world is the, oh, okay, that's how. But, um, but the other thing I would say about it is w- when we're confident in our assurance of, of salvation, it doesn't mean we will never be stressed out or sad or yeah. angry or yeah. upset, yeah. but it does mean when we're in those seasons, like in Isaiah, there's these glimmers of hope still. Um, and uh, you know, the psalmist talks about, I will not be shaken. God's my rock. God's my fort. Yeah. Well, you're going to be shaken, but you still have this firm foundation of e- the assurance of eternity that you can fall back on. That's the part of changing the way we live now. Yeah. Yeah. If we know Jesus wins, and he does, mm-hmm. if, if, if I knew the Cubs were going to win tonight, I'd have a whole different outlook on, and that's just an example. It's not the most important thing in my life. I'm a fan, but if I know they're going to win, changes the way I feel about it. It changes the way I feel going into the game. Um, we know we're saved. That's what Paul's saying. Enough of this, this weak faith that says, ah, we'll see what happens when I die. No, podcast listener, you can know that you know right now that you are saved. And that's going to change the way you live, as you guys are saying. Warren was an old guy in the first church that I served. He was a World War II vet. And when he got lung cancer, he was in the hospital dying. He would, he would love it for me to just come in, sit beside his bed and read the Psalms to him. And it, uh, he didn't like having cancer, but there was something about just mm-hmm. hearing that, that promise again that gave him a sense of peace, renewed his faith, and it yeah. changes everything. Yeah. And we sure. need that not just on the days that we're in the hospital. We need that every day. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Confidence in God's Word. Paul encourages Titus to appoint church leaders in Crete, just as he did for Timothy in Ephesus. Are these lists prescriptive for Crete and Ephesus for the 21st century church or for both? Well, uh, they're prescriptive for the Crete church, that's for sure, and for Titus, because he's giving him specific instructions. Paul's saying, Titus, take this in here. Here's what the elders should be. Here's what, which are like presbyters in the original Greek. Here's what the, depends on your English translation, church leaders, pastors, whatever should be. In the Greek, it's um, bishop, actually. It's overseer of many churches. We talked about that on a previous podcast. Uh, But it's at a minimum descriptive for us, and there are certainly transferable principles. I think it's dangerous to take a list that Paul's writing for a very specific church because we've already kind of established, hey, this is what's going on in Crete. And it's really, for us to understand the power of this word and find the truth of it, it's really important for us to know that history. It's really important for us to understand, okay, that's why Paul wrote that. That's why he said God doesn't lie. Instead of just reading it like, well, duh, God doesn't lie. Well, you know, he's contrasting the God who doesn't lie with the Zeus who does. Mm-hmm. And, and so, oh, I need to know context in order to fully understand text. That's why it's a little dangerous to just say every, every prescriptive list for a first century church is now prescriptive for all of us. Because Paul sometimes doesn't even makes it clear that it isn't and says, well, it's for here and it's not for there or whatever. But at a minimum, there's transferable principles. And I would say the transferable principle here is church leaders should be honorable people. They should be people who um, have a strong faith. Let, let's just talk about that as a minimum and, and some other things. And we, we try to do that here, too, as a church, imperfectly, 
but it's important that leaders aren't just anybody, right? That somebody's like, well, I really don't know what I believe about God, but let me teach that Sunday school class. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had, you know, I we have don't some, do that. Right. We, yeah, thank you, Emily. <laughs> as the person who makes those decisions. In case you wondered. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important that the church be spiritually safe and that we have consistency in our teaching uh, and that we don't just like shoot people in 27 different directions. But there's something else here. There's another ditch on the other side. I think it's important then to have accountability, to have leaders who, who meet certain standards. Paul's kind of making that clear, not kind of, definitely. But on the other side of that same road, there's another ditch, which is we can go too far the other way, which is kind of legalistically start to apply and say, oh, well, it says here that church leaders should be blameless. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, and typically we think that that means from English, blameless means like sinless. It says about somebody who doesn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not what it means. It's actually a legal word in the original Greek that means you can't be taken to court because you have a legal issue that you could get sued for or you could get imprisoned for. Probably best if we don't have those people leading uh, in church. It isn't blameless like you don't have any moral issues in your life. It's blameless. You're not going to get dragged before a judge literally, like actual Mm -hmm. physically before a real judge in a real court and thrown in prison because that's going to mess up the church. We've got to be a little careful here. So blameless doesn't mean sinless, but Paul is saying it matters who leads. And and we've experienced that in all of our... I mean, I almost stopped being in ministry because I showed up for a Wednesday night at uh, the first church where I was a, a youth guy, and none of my volunteers showed up. And it, it ended up being all kinds of reasons why that happened. But you you have to have uh, the boundaries, the guidelines, yeah. the expectations um, and clearly articulated, or it, it becomes chaos in a hurry. It does. Mm. It does. Chaos is overrated, right, Emily? Yeah. <laughs> Controlled chaos. Controlled chaos. Yeah, yeah, we we like to control the chaos here. Yeah, right. That's called ministry. Right. How does Paul's biblical view of church and family life compare to the prevailing first century cultural worldview, and why does it matter practically and evangelically? Uh, Paul's changing things significantly, Mm -hmm. and uh, part of our problem is we compare what he's writing to our current cultural context. It'd probably be important to start with comparing what he's writing to the cultural context into which he's writing it. So mm-hmm. he's not the first person to come up with an idea of household codes and how do you uh, live as a, a person of a particular category within a household. Uh, Aristotle wrote about this as well. <laughs> uh, so th- this is the culture into which Paul writes uh, Titus. Aristotle says men should rule the household because, this is Aristotle's words, not Scott's, uh, <laughs> men are more rational and women are less rational. Children are pre-rational, uh, immature, and slaves are irrational. And so he said that that's how we set up uh, the authority structure within a home. Uh, Paul says something very differently. Here, here's he, Paul says, Jesus is Lord. Mm. Jesus, the starting very place. Different. Jesus is Lord. He's he's the one uh, who has the authority. And in other places, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Ephesians so 5. that, uh, and, and it's really interesting in most Bibles, uh, Ephesians 5.21 is separated from the rest of the household codes when really it should be the foundation upon which uh, the rest of the household code, household, 
What's your mm-hmm. name? Household codes are <laughs> which rains uh, down. Yeah. On them. They yes. nice. right. yeah. well done. So, but just the, the nick of time. The oh, other thing, oh, man. Wow. Oh, oh, oh. wow, all over the place. Good night, everyone. The other thing that Paul's doing here, and it gets back to that blameless idea, is it's always for the sake of mission. So, uh, women, I want you to act this way. Men, this way. Slaves, this way. Children, this way. So that here's a uh, verse ten of chapter two. Then they will make a teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. And that's kind of his idea. Here's what it looks like for you to be a man who makes uh, Jesus attractive. Here's what it looks like for you to be a woman. Here's what it looks like for you to be... um, So how do we apply that then to our day becomes super important. How do I live today to make Jesus attractive? The other thing I really love about this passage is that uh, he's saying, hey, the older women, talk to the younger women. Older guys, talk to the younger guys. Younger guys, talk to the older guys. He's saying, we're a family. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a faith and a salvation and a way of life defined by God's love that we're passing on. Mm-hmm. And so th- that's not just something like, well, the student ministry people, they're supposed to pass on the faith. No, we as a community, we're passing it on. And there's going to be, you know, someday when we're all old and in, in the grave, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, there's going to be Lutheran churches around, hopefully, there's going to be Lutheran churches around, and none of us are going to be in attendance because we'll be in the party in heaven. So will they know? Will they know the faith? Will they know the good news? And that's not just ministry people. That's Jesus people. That's us. All of us are called to pass on this faith that goes from generation to generation because we received it. And so we want to mm-hmm. pass it on too. Mm-hmm. Tone matters so much. And and you're both alluding to this. So hum- the only way we're going to allow generations to speak to other generations and to teach other generations by words and by examples and by actions is through humility. It's to say, oh, well, what if I'm, what if, what if I allow a fifth grader to teach me? Is my heart open to that? What do do I allow somebody older to teach me? Do I allow somebody younger to teach me? Do I allow, allow somebody of a different gender to teach me? Do I allow, because God can work through all those different things, and Paul is pointing to that for sure. But I think what's also going on here, in you alluded to this, Scott, is that evangelical witness that tone matters. So it's not just what we do as the church as Christians. It's the motivation and how we do it. And if the motivation isn't, and, and the how isn't love-based, if it isn't agape love-based, grace-based, we're, we're, we're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, Paul said earlier in, in his letter to the Corinthians. Tone matters. And that actually leads into the next question, because tone continues to be an important part of this passage, key passage at the end of Titus. Yeah, how does Paul's poem and teaching in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, serve as both spiritual truth and a beautiful tone-setting reminder of the church's primary message and mission? It, it is a tone-setter, and it reminds us we aren't what we've been saying all along. It isn't what we do that gets us right with God. It's what God does through Jesus' death and resurrection that gets us right. And so he says, when God our Savior, this is chapter 3, verse 4 of Titus, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. And this is poetry, actually. It probably in our English translation should be set up the way Isaiah is in the poetic parts. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out this. I mean, it just goes on. It's just beautiful. It's, and it's so encouraging and it's so hope-filled. I, 
what is clear to me is that God's love for us is that way. The, the tone that God has for us. I mean, God could look at us and say, look at you. What a total mess. And there is a time to speak that truth in love. But it's always in love, which is another Pauline line from another epistle earlier in our reading this year. God's love for us is so central to our uh, faith, to our Christianity, to our hope, to our assurance, to our confidence, to our salvation. It is, it is, it is everything. And then we go out as those who are called to reflect that same kind of love, that grace-based love, even as we're speaking truth to people. And I just don't see it as often as I, in my own life, I'm not going to start with just them, but my temptation is always to just, ah, you know, we we did a color code thing for our staff a while ago, and, and, and we've repeated it a few times every few years, which is a personality test. It's no better or worse than other ones. It's just one of them. And so my color code came out as primarily the things I live for are joy. <laughs> you know, like, is it fun? If it isn't fun, why are we doing it? But also equally important to me is truth. Like, it's, it got, And other people are more intimacy relationships or um, peace and, you know, tranquility in the midst of things. And that makes the world go around. Jesus was a lot of all those things. But for me as somebody who truth is really important, I just... My my sinful nature is I just want to pounce. I, I just that's wrong and this is right, mm-hmm. and that's the Christian that's tone again. Sometimes I say to my wife, who's my best and most honest critic. I have others that I check in with after every sermon, every at least once a weekend. And one of the things I always ask my wife and these other folks is, tell me about tone. Mm-hmm. Tell me about. Don't just tell me was what I said accurate or biblically true or whatever. Tell me about tone. Was the tone... This is what Paul's saying here. If God did this for us, and in the whole household code, and what community church life should look like leading up to that, it's got to be, verse 10, it's got to be attractive in every way, chapter 2, verse 10. Is our tone attractive in every way? Is it, is, is it teaching? Yes. Great. But so much of the church these days is just take out the sledgehammer and slam people over the head with it. It's not effective in the long run. It's, not, it's good for a holy huddle. It'll make you feel better about yourself and, and worse about the people who aren't good enough to belong to your little holy huddle. But that isn't Christianity. Christianity is we have a mission to bring this good news of God's love to the world around us. But if we don't love the people that we're bringing it to and we're just offended by them and dismissive of them, we've lost our tone and we've lost our evangelical witness and we've lost our prophetic voice to tie it back into Isaiah. And part fancy of why lights I, won't even fix that. Our what? Our fancy lights won't even fix that no. because if you don't have the love, there's, you don't have the power. Yeah. It, it takes more than the right system, the right approach, the right, the right, you know, kind of leader or whatever. It, it takes a tone. It takes a tone that's Christ-like. Part of what's important is to remind ourselves what was going on in our lives when we first experienced the kindness and love and mercy and grace and new life yeah. of God. That That is a humbling reminder mm. that, oh, I, and, and Paul does this sometimes. He says, you were once that, but now you're not any longer. So if if we remember where we came from, yeah. then that can give us the humility to reach out. That's it good. does. One more. Yeah, quickly, who is Philemon and why is Paul's shortest New Testament letter also potentially one of the most radical, controversial, and explosive? Well, uh, Philemon owned a slave, and that slave met Paul, 
And Paul was sending that slave back saying, hey, uh, he's now your brother. Radical. Not not your slave. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talked about the house codes. Uh, slaves in that time, they, they were very, very common. It was really like a, even the backbone of the economy. And Paul was blowing up the economy mm-hmm. and giving humanity and dignity to slaves in a time where it just was, this is just life. This is just what it is. And, and Paul said, not anymore, not anymore. Mm-hmm. Every single human being that you come eyeball to eyeball with, they're made in the image of God and when they become a part of the family of God through Jesus Christ, they are your brother. And the thing that I love, my favorite part of this, this whole book is where he talks about how gaining a brother adds so much more value to you mm-hmm. than having a slave. Mm-hmm. And I mean, apply that to every relationship in your life. Gaining a brother or a sister, think how much value you get out of that relationship as opposed to, well, this person can do this for me or this person should do that for me or this person didn't do what I wanted them to do. Yep. What if it was your brother or sister? Yeah. Paul says there's neither, what I mean, he says it, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And here he lives it out again in his letter to Philemon saying, receive Onesimus, this former slave of yours, as an equal. The, the Greek word that Paul uses twice in this short little epistle, shortest epistle of all, maybe the most controversial, uh, maybe the loudest in mm-hmm. some ways, because he's pushing back so hard against a culture that thinks slavery is okay. And people who would wrongly and lazily interpret the Bible and say, oh, it's, pro- it's, it's for slavery. It, meant, it is not. It clearly is not. And Philemon is just like the living proof where Paul does mention slaves in, how, in a household code, but basically he's saying in Christ... No, you're not over any other human being. The Greek word is koinonia, that we do life together in harmony with each other, in community with each other, that we need each other, that we're, that Christianity isn't just tune into another podcast and listen to it as an individual. It's tune into this podcast for the sake of being a better sister or brother in Christ to somebody, to, to being a witness, to, to having the right tone, to, to getting God's word out there in highly effective ways. And I... Boy, we could go 20 more minutes on this one, yeah. but we're on yeah. a hard stop. We want to value your time. Those of you especially who are doing this over your lunch hour at work live, thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're reading through the whole Holy Bible together as a church family this year. Thank you for um, reading it. Thank you for learning it. Thank you for living it out. And thank you for showing up for church, even when you're watching the Hawkeyes on Saturday. We'll see you this Sunday. for joining us today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite platform and we'll see you next time.